Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the latest installment of History Hack. Um, This is London, this is Nighthawk calling. Um, If you don't get that reference, I'm ashamed of you and you haven't lived and we're going to use it every day so you need to go and Google it. Um, Today we are thrilled to welcome Paul Lay, editor of History Today and author of Providence Lost, which is his new uh, book about Cromwell's protectorate and the rise and fall of the Republic in uh, England. Paul, hello. Hello, hello. How, How are, are you? you doing? Oh, we're good. We're, we've been telling people about Alina's enforced isolation, about me trying to social distance from my cat. But how are things? You're in North London. How are things there? Yeah, it's okay. I'm looking out on the garden. At least I've got a garden. The sun's shining, so it could be worse. My wife is one of these people who has to um, stay in lockdown for 12 weeks. So that basically means I have to stay in lockdown as well. But um, We've got plenty of food. We've got friends around here and the sun's shining, so it could be worse. Oh, the horror, the horror. Um, yeah, I'd say if you if people are quite uh, suddenly falling in love with their gardens again, aren't they? Because it's a means to get outside they are, if they yeah. are on that list. But uh, best of luck, um, and we hope your wife stays healthy. It was just so terrifying. I mean, my mum's on the slightly vulnerable list, not the horrific one, but I do have a cancer patient friend, and he's just... Luckily, he has a garden as well. But, um, yeah, I think it's going to be very tough for those people. Um, what yeah, is the, the stupidest? We've been asking people this. What is the stupidest thing you've heard about coronavirus, whether it's how to uh, get rid of it, how to make sure you don't get it? Any good well, ones? Well, the, the only one I heard, I mean, I can't believe that anyone suggested this, was a hot bath. But I can't, I can't see how that would possibly cure coronavirus. But um, no, or indeed uh, stop you from getting it. But apart from that, I don't know. It seems to me to be very sensible to take the advice and just keep a bit of distance from people, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think people are generally just making crap up now, aren't they? And flinging it out there in social are. media. Well, they've got a lot of time. They've got a lot of time left for themselves to make sort of stuff up. So it's, it's not too good. And social media doesn't help. But there you go. I'd yeah. say listen to the doctor. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, we had Luke Daily Groves on on our first show, and and he was saying as well that um, social media, unfortunately, although it's proving good because people can stay in touch, it's also the amount of crazies he has to deal with for his uh, Hitler conspiracy book um, has grown exponentially since people have nothing better to do. No, I can imagine we live in a very uh, conspiratorial world and when people have too much time on their hands, it gets even more conspiratorial, I think. So let's talk about your book, um, which looks fantastic uh alina you're going to kick us off we've got some questions for you i'm going to admit now that with not a lot of um 
knowledge behind it. If you ask me who I hate more than anyone else in British history, I would probably say Oliver Cromwell. So I'm really interested to hear your answers to some of these questions. But don't worry, it's not going to be like an interrogation. Um, Alina, kick us off. Um, by the way, my knowledge on Oliver Cromwell is non-existent. So I highly apologise for um, anything I say incorrectly. You are, you are not alone. <laughs> <laughs> so... <clears throat> Uh, let's kick off with the uh, first question for me. So tell us about Cromwell as a military commander and actually how, how good was he? Well, he's astonishingly good. He's basically a soldier, a cavalry commander who never loses a battle, who never loses an encounter of any significance at all. Um, and it's also extraordinary because he comes to the job really late in life. I mean, this is a man who for the first 40 years of his life is pretty much a non-entity. He's a minor MP, probably the poorest MP of his intake. And he's forced uh, because the original parliamentary army is fairly calamitous. It's not that great. And it professionalises in a way and becomes the new modelled army, which is disciplined, which regards itself as a kind of religious force. The men within the new modelled army and the parliamentary forces actually call themselves the saints. They believe they're doing God's work and that it's God behind them and it's God who will deliver them victory. And Cromwell's very much of that kind of mentality. He's a Puritan. He's a man who's had quite a substantial conversion uh, experience and um, he believes that he's doing God's work. They call themselves God's instruments and so when they start they're incredibly disciplined, they're incredibly focused, they're incredibly brave and decisive and Cromwell is an incredibly brave and decisive military commander who leads from the front. He also has a lot of very able uh, people around him, most notably John Lambert who it could be argued is every bit as good a military commander as, as he is. And they turn out to be a remarkable fighting force that forces, um, that eventually defeats the Royalist army. Um, you mentioned there that Cromwell was a, a non-entity, really, for the first 40 years of his life. Um, there, there's literally nothing on him, is there? So uh, do we know why he was such a Puritan and why he was so vehemently anti-Catholic? Well, the anti-Catholic thing is, is, is a more complex thing that perhaps we can look at later. He comes from a family that is a very strong Puritan heritage. Uh, he, his family originates from Wales and his ancestors were very close to Thomas Cromwell. The family name was actually Williams, but uh, Thomas Cromwell, who was, of course, the great uh, Protestant evangelical, the man who brought Anne Boleyn to power, who was the great political ally of Henry VIII. This made uh, Hilary Mantel a, a multi-millionaire as well. Right. <laughs> Hilary Mantel extremely rich and has almost made Thomas as famous as Oliver these days. But um, they were close to that family. And it was quite normal at the time for people to take the family of a prominent figure they were associated with. So they changed their name to Cromwell uh, during the 16th century. And extraordinarily, they kept it even after the fall of Thomas Cromwell. 
So that meant, that shows just how committed they were, that even in dangerous times, they were happy to be associated with Thomas Cromwell and all that he stood for. And that's where the name comes from. So there was already that very, very strong, established East Anglian Puritan yeoman tradition for which um, Cromwell was part. And they did quite well originally in the family from Thomas Cromwell's dissolution of the monasteries. But by the time Cromwell was mature, a lot of that money had been dissipated. And there were periods when he was actually rather sort of poor, humble farmer at the lower end of the gentry. So um, he was very much a, a kind of yeoman farmer. So he was not a grand figure at all. And when he eventually did become an MP uh, for Huntingdon, uh, which now has the uh, museum that's devoted to him, um, he was very, very low-born, possibly the poorest MP of his intake. And he was not particularly noted. He very much came to the fore as a military commander. That was the making of the man. All the more extraordinary the fact that he had almost no, no, that he had almost no um, experience at all as a uh, cavalry commander. Indeed, he had no military experience, as far as we're aware before he actually became a soldier during the civil wars. Alina, you have another one. Yeah, sorry, I didn't want to kind of interrupt there, but um, from my limited reading, again, please don't judge me, um, Ireland, from, from what I know, Ireland get, kind of gets the brunt of, of all of this, really. So is he actually the most potent figure in the history of Ireland? Um, can you shed well, some light on that? I think it's, this is a very controversial topic. There are many people who argue that Cromwell's actions uh, in Ireland during uh, the campaign after the king's ex execution, because what we have to remember about um, Cromwell is that he was the first person to unite uh, what we now know as Britain and Ireland. He united those islands by force in Scotland, by force in Ireland. It's absolutely true. Um, and in Ireland, it was a particularly brutal campaign. There are massacres, uh, it, aren't there? Then it's a little more complicated than that. I think, I think part of the problem with Cromwell is that he's become part of a nation's foundation myth. And it's a relatively young nation, Ireland. Remember, it's, it's not even 100 years old as it is. Um, and he's become this figure who personifies everything that's bad about England. And of course, there are very, very interesting books by him. Michael Chakra with God's Executioner is a very, very good one. Others have taken a more benign stance on it. But a lot of people argue, and I think I'm probably close to this. I mean, I'm not an expert on this part of uh, Cromwell's um, life at all but i think it's fair to say that what was going on there was by the standards of the time and remember we're talking about the period here when europe continental europe was absolutely ravaged during the 30 years war which was a bitter sectarian conflict in which there were massacres on a grand scale that what happened in ireland within that context is a rather more complex uh, thing than perhaps national mythologies on either side 
of that debate would argue. I mean, you have in Belfast, of course, and you did have in Belfast great pictures of people like Cromwell and William III, who were these great figures who became part of Protestant mythology in Ireland. And then there are others who become the great nationalist figures. But I think historians have to cut through the mythology and see Cromwell as a much more complex figure. Saying that, there were certainly those within the regime who had a genocidal uh, view of the Irish that was not simply just about their Catholicism. If you look at Oliver Cromwell's relationship with English Catholics, for example, it was fairly tolerant. Uh, and he had friends and people like Kenel Digny, for example, who he was um, quite friendly with, quite tolerant towards. There was an element of what we would now think of as racism uh, towards the Irish in general, uh, the Catholic Irish in general, the rural Irish in general, that was more than just the anti-Catholicism. Whether Oliver Cromwell is an extreme example of that is open to historical debate. Uh, this sounds like that could be an entire series of programmes on its own in a can of worms. It could worms be several <laughs> yeah. programmes and continue yeah. forever. So um, we've looked at him, um, some of his military actions and, and some of his like physically going out there and, um, as you say, forcing people um, like Scotland and Ireland under control. But looking at his political ideas, um, I find it really interesting. Once once the protect uh, once the Commonwealth is established um, in its various forms, isn't it, to, till the protectorate? Um, he wasn't really interested in changing the social order, was he? He wasn't, I mean, you say he was low born. He wasn't really interested in, in he wasn't a, a communist of sorts. He, he was all about establishing order after the civil wars. And, and he was more interested in people's spirituality and morality, obviously on his own terms and in line with what he believed and, and tackling those things, wasn't he? Yes, I agree. I mean, essentially, he's a very conservative figure. If we want to say, I think one of the things that we misunderstand about Cromwell is that we associate him with people like the levellers, we see the radicals, like the ranters, and we think he's part of their milieu. But I think we have to be very, very cautious about that because he's actually quite a conservative figure. He's not by his nature anti-monarchical. He just sees Charles I as problematic, a man of blood, as he's called, uh, a man who has caused immense pain and suffering and conflict in England in particular. And so I think his real issue is specifically with Charles rather than it is with monarchy itself. And I think the other thing that's often not understood about this period is that in many ways, it's Charles who is the radical because it's Charles who has seen new ideas from the continent, and in particular, the ideology of absolutism, which finds its apotheosis in Louis XIV, the Sun King, all the power, the state being in one person. And Charles's head is turned when he visits Europe and he falls in love with European art, he falls in love with the European court that is turning towards an absolutist ideology. And he wants of that. Whereas Cromwell and those around him talk about 
the ancient constitution. They refer to Magna Carta, not always um, in, uh, in the nicest terms, but they are people who wish to keep an England that is ordered, that is one about social hierarchy, but one that more importantly, far more important than politics, I think, is the religious element. And I think one of the reasons why we find the 1650s so difficult to comprehend from a 21st century perspective is the absolute dominance of religion among people such as Oliver Cromwell. As I said, his followers, his soldiers call themselves the saints. They believe they are an elect within an elect nation. Just as Israel was the nation, God's nation of the Old Testament, then so England will be God's country of the New Testament. And they are so this elect within an elect nation. And they want to make England this absolute center of Puritanism, of Christianity, of moral reformation. And obviously that's an extremely difficult thing to do, but essentially they're religious fundamentalists. Some are more tolerant mm -hmm. than others. Uh, some are a little more, um, some are quite mad, one might say, in their uh, religious fundamentalism. There are groups such as the Fifth Monarchists, for example, who believe that there's been a series of world monarchies which will eventually reach their fruition in England, which will be this fifth monarch, and, and they will uh, uh, see the return of God, that, that Jesus will be that fifth. I think if you want to look at his own political and to a certain extent religious ideology, the closest you'd get is something like an Elizabethan Puritan. Mm. His, great, his great political hero is Elizabeth. And his worldview is essentially an Elizabethan one. So far as we're aware, it's quite possible that the only book he ever read that wasn't a religious book was Walter Raleigh's History of the World, which in some sense is a kind of blueprint for Protestant English providentialism, the idea that England is this elect nation that has to go out into the world to build an empire. And I think it's David Armitage, the historian David Armitage, who calls the period of the 1650s the imperial moment, Britain's imperial moment. This is the time when really the ideology of an empire is formed. Uh, and in the Elizabethan sense, it's very anti-Spanish. It's Spain. It's the, the, the myth of Spain as this cruel, persecuting, dark, Catholic place that is really the motivating ideology for foreign policy once Cromwell and his regime become established. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
the secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's fascinating. Uh, I've got a question, if I can jump in, if you don't mind. Um, when the public was declared in 1649, do you think he had the designs on the roll that eventually turned him as Lord Protector? No, I don't think so. Uh, in fact, he seems very reluctant. I mean, they'd taken this enormous decision, the trial and execution of Charles I, and they didn't really know what to do after. Um, and the entire regime fishes around for solutions. Um, and Cromwell is just a kind of primus inter pares there. In all the way through the Republic and the Protectorate, the group of people who allow it to function, on which it's built, is the army. Without the army's support, nothing works. And what's significant about Cromwell is he seems to be the person who is most able to bridge the military and the political divide, and of course the religious divide, because no one doubts Cromwell's religious beliefs. No one doubts his ability as a soldier. And now they have to invest in the future in Cromwell's abilities as a politician. And I think in there, he's a very different figure from the military leader. The military leader is very decisive. He's very courageous. Uh, as a religious thinker, he's very clear. But as a political figure, like many around him, because they're in completely new territory here, um, he's much less certain. And I think this is where the religious and the political come together because he appears to be in an almost constant dialogue with God, a one-to-one -one dialogue with God, uh, where he's asking God, what is the right decision to do? And this is, he's deeply sincere about this. This isn't something I don't think. There, there is a sense of Cromwell as a politician that he's quite evasive. Um, there's a great phrase from the historian Blair Worden about him as a politician, that he's practised at not knowing. He's never quite there when the big decisions appear to have been made. He's quite slippery. He's quite evasive. But nevertheless, his religious beliefs are deeply, deeply held and utterly sincere. And ultimately, I think the one person that Cromwell serves above all is his God. And that ultimately is why he turns down the crown. Uh, it's not because he's against monarchy in general. And in fact, personally, and for his family, it would be immensely advantageous to be king. But he believes that God, uh, through providence, has decided to do away with the monarchy. And so it's not for him, as he phrases it, to build Jericho again. Uh, one of the key figures, and I think when we're talking about whether he wants to be this Lord Protector or indeed even a king, the person behind this is one of the 
perhaps the next most significant figure in the regime, certainly the early days of the regime, and that's John Lambert, who was a brilliant cavalry commander, but also a deep political thinker. And he wrote, composed, the world's first written constitution, which is the instrument of government, so that he could put the regime on a more stable basis. And what he tried to do was to turn the old um, triptych of king, lords and commons, and he transferred that into protector, council and parliament. And so um, it, that becomes the basis of it. And the problem is, is that by then parliament is rather denuded in a way because a lot of people have been expelled, a lot of people have been removed, a lot of people have become disenchanted with the, with the way in which um, uh, the process is going because the protector looks a lot like a king to the more radical figures. And that's a problem uh, to people like the Levellers, for example, and people like John Milton, who's been very close to Cromwell and has admired him. He's called him God's Englishman, but he's also deeply suspicious of the personal ambition of Cromwell. Um, but Lambert puts this, this political package together. Um, but Cromwell is always dissatisfied with parliaments. He loves the idea of parliaments, but they never quite live up to his expectations. And to a certain extent, that's true of the English people too. He wants them to be this holy, reformed, deeply spiritual people. When he, he has this great phrase, when he comes out of the civil wars, and these people who are on their path to redemption, they're on this path to a promised land. He says they're under circumcision, but raw. And what he means by that is there's a long, long way to go before they fulfill their real role as God's elect. And that's one of the key problems that Cromwell always has. The English people are never really good enough for it. In 2002, he made that list, didn't he, of the top 10 greatest Britons of all time. And at the time, I scoffed muchly, um, not just about him, but I scoffed muchly that he made the top 10. Do you think he belongs there? Well, it depends how you define greatness, I suppose. I mean, I, th I think a lot of people think that this book, uh, certainly those who haven't read it, will think it's essentially a Cromwellian book, that it's, uh, that it's positive about Cromwell. That's certainly not the case. I think he's a deeply flawed individual. There's no doubt about that. He was a great military leader, although one untested abroad. I mean, the furthest he went was Ireland, um, of which, of course, he's immensely controversial, as we've already touched on. Uh, so he didn't campaign in continental Europe, he didn't campaign against the great armies there. Um, so there's certainly a sense that in military terms he can be called great. It's certainly an astonishing achievement to come from his background and to be the head of state. He's a great orator in many ways, um, he's not an intellectual. I mean, I think people always ask, what's the difference between Thomas Cromwell and Oliver Cromwell? I think that uh, Thomas Cromwell is plainly a great intellectual. He's a brilliant political thinker. I don't think you can say that of Cromwell. 
because I think Cromwell, and we come back to religion again here, is the sincerity of his religious views. He deeply wants to reform, morally and spiritually reform um, Britain and England in particular. Uh, he's, he constantly uses this phrase, healing and settling the nation. But of course, as we know, that's easier said than done. And the obvious thing that he should have done, which perhaps he should have done was to take the crown because then it could have been settled. But again, it's the religious, it's the religious beliefs that stop him from doing so. Is he great? Yes, I suppose he is because he achieved a position of greatness within history. It's not an insubstantial achievement to be the head of state in Britain's only Republican experiment. That's a pretty extraordinary achievement. And the legacy of Cromwell never really disappears. Obviously, it's very bad in Ireland where it's appreciated, but there's never absolute monarchy again. That disappears from Britain. There is the sense of religious liberty and tolerance that you have with non-conformism, the old divide between church, as in the Church of England, and chapel, the non-conformist ones. And that's a, a legacy that lives on to this day. And of course, also the party split between Whigs and Tories that's developed since then remains. Uh, the emphasis on Parliament remains. Uh, so these are substantial legacies that one can argue that Cromwell was responsible for. And also, as we've already pointed out, this is where the British Empire, for good or ill, has its real deep origins. And there are, there are other things that are more specific, such as a great deal of uh, legal reforms that happen there that's quite technical, but is, is lasting. So I think there is a real lasting legacy, which suffice, I suppose, to make him great. But that doesn't necessarily mean that one has to applaud all his actions at all. And in fact, I think... I think this is the way that people still divide themselves, rather like 1066 and all that, into those who are royalists, cavalists, and those who are roundheads. And actually, I think the best understanding of this period is probably someone like T.S. Eliot, who, in Little Gidding, the final poem of the Four Quartets, realised that these are in many ways things that have become intertwined in British politics, that People are, as Gilbert and Sullivan said, a little bit liberal or a little bit conservative. Um, you know, the, it's not a either or position. It's one that shifts along. And Cromwell's been part of that process, I think. I think, do you know what, my beef, I think, ultimately, was that he finished way ahead of the Duke of Wellington. But I think it is also important to remember <laughs> that David Beckham was ranked the 33 greatest Britain, uh, 33rd greatest Britain of all time in that poll. So perhaps we should uh, take it with a pinch of salt. Do you know what, let's, uh, let's round it up with the last question, if you guys are all right with that. Absolutely. Um, so... Um, had he not died when he did, obviously, in uh, 1658, do you think the Republic would have survived and uh, would we have lost as a nation if, if, when it didn't? It's very difficult to say. I mean, counterfactuals are always difficult. Uh, the monarchy, in a sense, never really disappeared because 
as Lord Protector he was, as many of his Republican opponents saw it, essentially a quasi-monarchical figure. There is the phrase that's often used of Cromwell as being a king in all but name. And I think that's true. And so a republic in a real sense was never really established. Even uh, Lambert's constitution, the instrument of government, and then later the humble petition and advice as it became, uh, was not like the kind of founding fathers of the United States, that kind of issue. It, was, it, was, it never really escaped the traditional hierarchy of monarchical or quasi-monarchical structures. And so that was a big problem. The only way I think Cromwell could have continued was really by accepting the crown. I think that was a fundamental problem there. And of course, it was it was made all the much worse that he died in 1658. You know, this was a man who wasn't quite 60. Uh, he was obviously quite ill at the time. He'd had a very, very difficult life as a cavalry figure. I mean, that is something that physically takes enormous amount out of you. And his daughter, uh, Elizabeth, who had died quite recently of what may well have been cancer, quite an agonising death. And I think that was in many ways the final straw. He handed on, or it appears he handed on, there's still some confusion about this, the protectorate to his son Richard, who's probably the worst prepared adult ruler in British history, who doesn't have a military background, he doesn't have the command of the army, and so therefore he doesn't have the loyalty of it, he doesn't have the respect of the army indeed. And so then the old fishers come out, and there's a terrible fear that all the radical groups, all the radical sects, who everyone feared during the Civil War years, are returning. And ultimately, Britain took probably the only option that it had at the time, and that is to have the return of the monarchy with the restoration of Charles II. Oh, thank you so much for coming on and not only giving us a fascinating insight into the 1650s and the period of um, the Republic, but also as well for rounding out my view of Oliver Cromwell, which was admittedly very basic and very presumptuous. Um, the Guardian is saying that your book is fantastic. They say a compelling and wry narrative of one of the most intellectually thrilling areas, eras of British history. Um, it's available now, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is from uh, all good bookshops, even though they'll be closed at the moment. But I'm sure Listen, there are other ones you can. <laughs> and there is Kindle as well, of course. There is, there is always Kindle. Um, but um, yeah, well, I hope it's it's very much a, a book born of frustration, really, because as as you've said, this is a really important and quite influential period in British history. But it's one the vast majority of people know almost nothing about. And so there's been great scholarship for many years on this period. And all I've done with this book is try to package that scholarship into an accessible form so that people can have some kind of introduction to it and then delve deeper into this utterly fascinating period. Well, thank you so much. I just say thank you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> for, someone, for someone who's absolutely useless in the subject, when I mean completely useless in the subject, I will definitely, when I can, be going out and grabbing myself a copy. So hopefully people will be joining me in grabbing themselves a copy. Read it, 
let's get knowing a bit more history, especially parts that, that aren't really talked about. So let's get talking. Speaking of talking, Alina, Alina, where are we going next? Who's next? So, so tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, we will be catching up with the mighty Joshua Levine, who will be talking about the Blitz spirit and if it even existed. So what parallels can we draw between what is happening now and back in London in the 1940s? And remember, people, stay safe and more importantly, if you can, stay at home. This is Nighthawk signing off. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.